Oh, yeah. Welcome to it. Here we go. UAP Studies Podcast. Very special two-year anniversary special episode. I'm Louis Borges. And of course, with me, I have a good buddy, Jason Gilmet. How are you, sir? I am doing very good today, sir. How are you? I'm really, really good. I'm super excited. Uh, we have on the show today a huge name in the field. In my opinion, one of the most credible people on the topic of UAPs, uh, skinwalkers, anything to do with this science. Uh, a man who's a multi-award winning uh, news anchor and author. I mean, we're a multiple Emmy Award winner, Edward R. Murrow Award winner, uh, Peabody Award winner, the host of his own program. He's appeared on the History Channel. Uh, and we want to talk to him today about his latest book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, which he co-wrote with uh, Colm Kelleher and Dr. James Lekatsky. So without further ado, Mr. George Knapp, please welcome yourself. And Jason, great to be with you. Happy anniversary, by the way. I uh, hope well, we can have some fun here today. For sure, for sure. We were just having a quick chat before we got started here, and already we're uh, we're in awe of uh, of your mind and uh, just a really <laughs> laid uh, laid back, down to earth guy. Uh, no BS. You just want to look talk about the facts, and uh, you've been constantly pushing the topic of UAP studies, UFOs since the mid '80s, yeah. uh, and even on the topic of skinwalkers, uh, you've been at this over 20 years. So. Um, probably the best source of anybody we could speak to about it. Uh, so let's get right into it. Let's chat about how you got into this, uh, you know, in the mid nineties and where it sort of progressed you today. Uh, 1987. So it's 35 years ago, I guess uh, a guy named John Lear walked into our TV station. He had a stack of what I learned later were UFO documents and plopped them on the desk of a friend of mine, my mentor, Ned Day, who was our managing editor at KLAS TV says, Ned, this is the biggest story ever. You got to look into it. Ned takes a look at some of the UFO files and shoved it aside and says, this can't be real. If it was true, I'd know about it. He was kind of cocky, like I was back in those days. Uh, Ned had a certain amount of uh, interest in John Lear because Lear had helped Ned and KLAS, uh, Bob Stodall, my, my boss, break a really big story. That is about the existence of the stealth fighter, which was not known until we reported it. And so Lear got entry into the studio, got an, uh, an audience with Ned, and then Ned said, no, thanks. Well, I was eavesdropping, as I always do. And I said, let me take a look at that pile of stuff. And it's some of the documents that have been re released about UFOs via the Freedom of Information Act. I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. I was not aware that there were legitimate documents in a paper trail. So I had uh, Lear come on a radio show, uh, uh, a talk show that I hosted at the time called On the Record. And I just let him go. It's it's a show that would air at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday or Sunday, public affairs. It usually had like a city councilman or a county commissioner. And a, the audience was very small. No one watched it unless they were political junkies. I put Lear on this show and he did his thing, outlines this outrageous, outrageously huge conspiracy, a UFO picture that I was unfamiliar with. And I was blown away by it. I didn't know what to think of it. It was just sort of a willing suspension of disbelief for the time being. But as a result of that show, when it aired, the phone starts ringing like crazy. People wondering, is that guy for real? What's the deal on UFOs? Do you believe this stuff? I didn't really know how to answer it because I didn't have much familiarity with the topic. But I started reading. And the more I read, the more intrigued I was. I had Lear come back on the program 
um, almost a year later, the response was even bigger. I had them on a third time. And uh, the response was bigger by magnitudes uh, each time he was there. And the more I learned, the more intriguing it became. And as you guys know, you know, 90, 95% of everything you see and read and hear in the UFO world is explainable. It's not entirely bullshit, but it is explainable. Um, prosaic explanations for UFO sightings. A lot of the conspiracy theories that, that uh, erupt over the years are made up. They, they can't be verified. So you have to be careful in, in how you proceed. But that remaining five to 7% of cases, um, documents, theories are legit. Uh, as far as we know, they, they, there's a kernel of truth in there. So that's what hooked me. Um, you know, what really got me going is, is not the UFOs that appear in the sky. It was the paper trail, the government documents as a journalist, that's something I could dig my, my teeth into and pursue. And we did, uh, we got a, filed a lot of FOIA requests of our own. I got uh, all the FOIA requests that had been released to that date uh, on UFOs, and it's very clear there's a legitimate interest in this topic at the highest levels of our military and government, and that has been obscured. They just haven't told the public the truth. They've tried to downplay it and dismiss it, but behind closed doors, before the Freedom of Information Act ever became the law of the land, when these military folks uh, conversed and exchanged ideas on the topic of UFOs, when they thought that no one would ever see these memos and documents, they took it very seriously. They said it's real. It's not fictitious or imaginary. It's real. We need to figure out what it was. They they entertained the idea that it might be Russians, and they quickly crossed that off the list. We still hear that now, by the way. Oh, it's Russians, Russian UFOs, Russian drones, Chinese drones. Still hear that. They know damn good and well it's not Chinese and Russian drones. It wasn't 50, 60, 70 years ago, and it's not today. We are now this year, it's a 75th anniversary of key uh, events in the history of UFOs. Uh, the Roswell incident in July, uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting, that 75th anniversary is in June, the creation of the CIA and the Air Force. Today, in fact, is an anniversary, your anniversary, but it's also the 25th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. That case started here in Nevada. Somebody saw a, this huge V-shaped craft in the sky over Henderson, Nevada. It then traveled to Prescott, Arizona. Then it was over Phoenix. The videos were recorded, by, and there were thousands and thousands of witnesses. And that case went all over the world. It's one of those rare cases that gets beyond just the boundaries of UFO world. It's known to the public. So, you know, this year is a key anniversary. Uh, we've come a long way in the last couple of years, but we still have so far to go. Sorry, I got rambling there. No, no, not at all. that's that's amazing. And uh, we are a UAP based show. I mean, this is the first time we've had the topic of skinwalkers other than with having Thomas Winterton on the show in the past. So uh, we have definitely spoken to people boots on the ground, uh, similar to yourself. So uh, so tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your work with NIDS and Robert Bigelow and how that sort of transition into, you know, deeper government investigations with these things uh, that weren't publicly known up until just recently in 2017 sure. with that uh, New York Times article about ATIP. And, you know, we had uh, Sean Cahill, who was actually on the USS Princeton, uh, which where the Tic Tac video was recorded. So um, we're, we want to get as close to the people that were uh, experiencing that. And I know that uh, you and some of your colleagues have also had uh, bizarre things happen. So kind of give us an idea of the rundown how it started and where we're at now. Well, uh, after those initial sh shows with Lear, I started reading and learning as much as I could. We produced a series in 1989 called UFOs, The Best Evidence. 
I worked about eight months on it, which for a TV station, that's a pretty substantial investment of time and resources. Uh, we thought in the, initially, well, this could be a couple of parts. It ended up being nine parts, 12 to 13 minutes each, which for TV, that's that's outrageous. You know, it was, but it was the highest rated. It remains the highest rated locally produced TV news series in the history of Las Vegas. I mean, it went everywhere. That story, one of the focuses was on Bob Lazar. So after I had met Lear and uh, and had those experiences, Bob Lazar and his friend Gene Huff sought me out. They thought, well, this is a guy we could talk to. And at the time, Lazar was afraid he was going to be killed. He was genuinely in fear for his life. So we got to know him. My news director and I went up there and interviewed him, put him through his paces, and we started investigating his background. We put his story as part of this series, UFO is the Best Evidence, but really it was a much larger picture and look at the UFO UAP topic in those days, and it went through the roof. We did a follow-up series in May of 1990, and in between those, after the first one had aired, I get a call from a guy named Robert Bigelow. The secretary says, hold for Robert Bigelow. I'd never heard the name before. He gets on the phone and says, hey, that series was really good. Uh, congratulations. I hope you stick with it. And then he says, can I help you in some way? I said, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, financially, can I support you? I said, well, you know, I can't do that. I work for a TV station, but I'll keep you in mind. And thanks very much. Robert Bigelow, as we now know, is not somebody to be denied. And uh, after that, he, he wanted to get an introduction to Lazar. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of people want to do that. I'm, I'm going to pass on it. Uh, Bigelow hired a couple of private investigators, found Lazar, got to know him. And then we started hanging out. We'd go out and have a, a meal or a drink or a coffee and start talking UFOs. And this went on for months. And eventually Bigelow uh, decided to start investing money with UFO researchers. Uh, and he struck a deal with Lazar. They had some of a little business going for six months or so, something like that. Uh, but Bigelow started handing out to people money to people like uh, Stan Friedman, um, Linda Howe, uh, John Mack. Uh, a number of other luminaries, names that you would know. <laughs> Jason, show them your Stanton Friedman picture. You're, you're telepathic, man. We sketched this photo of Stanton Friedman earlier. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we're also a big fan of his work. So continue. Uh, it was just sort of a coincidence that, you know, I moved to Las Vegas. I had no idea there was a place called Area 51. I didn't know about the Nevada test site the, the, where all the atomic bombs were blown up, Dallas Air Force Base. I didn't know there was a guy named Bob Lazar. I didn't know about John Lear or Robert Bigelow. And all these things sort of coalesced in, in an amazing series of coincidences that led to where we are now. But Las Vegas plays such a key role in what we now know about UAP and UFO that I don't think anyone could have foreseen. You have to wonder what's in the water here. So I develop a friendship with, with uh, Bigelow and Lazar. We do additional stories. I start getting leads uh, and sources from all over the world, people sending me this and that, and I kind of got hooked. Now, I'm still a full-time investigative reporter for KLAS. The UFO part is a very small percentage of, of what I normally do, but it really grabbed my attention. And um, I remember in those days, it was almost like missionary zeal, you know, when you're born again or something like that, you want to share this information. You have sort of a, I don't know if I'd call it an epiphany, but at some point back then, I realized, hey, this stuff, this stuff is real. Uh, you know, and I was kind of cocky in those days in the sense that the topic is a mess. I had read enough to know that it's a real mess, a lot of disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy nuts and all kinds of theories that couldn't be proven. I figured, well, give me six months. I'll have this whole thing wrapped up and sorted out. You know, obviously, 
That's not the way it worked out. Here it is 35 years later. And although I know a lot more, I understand a lot less. It's, it's a lot more complicated than what we believed back then. You know, the prevailing paradigm at the time was that UFOs are craft that visit us from other planets. And that is mind-boggling in itself. But, you know, my, my thinking on it has shifted quite a bit that I'm sure we'll get into. Anyway, early 90s relationship with friendship with Bigelow, and I still am pursuing UFO matters. A lot of things happened in Lazar's life that we can get into. Uh, but uh, Bigelow had got tired of just giving out money to individual researchers. He created his own UFO think tank, which is called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. Um, and he brought together a science advisory board that consisted of really some of the best minds in the world, not just on the UFO topic, but any topic. Uh, there are two primary focuses for NIDS. One was survival of consciousness after physical death. Do we go on? And then the other part was the UFO mystery. And they had experts on the science advisory board on both topics. In addition, Bigelow hired people like Colin Kelleher, Eric Davis, to uh, constitute a, an investigative team. They, would, uh, they had boots on the ground, uh, responses to things like cattle mutilations. Uh, they did a study of the black triangles. They, they were looking for ideas, which is why uh, Bigelow got me involved, is that he wanted me to be a consultant to NIDS to give them ideas on what they could do. Uh, the first thing I did was about Russia. I had gone to Russia in the early 90s, brought back several hundred pages of what were then classified documents about the Russian UFO program. At the very first meeting of the Science Advisory Board of NIDS, they had me make a presentation. And I was blown away by who was around the table. Hal Putoff, Jacques Vallée, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. Uh, Senator Harrison Schmidt, the last man to walk on the moon, was part of the board. Uh, and then a, a lot of other uh, academics, just brilliant people. And there I was making a presentation to them. Yeah, it was, it was just awesome. I was blown away by it. And then NIDS continued. They looked for ideas. One of the ideas I gave them in 96 was a guy named Phil Corso. Now, I, Phil Corso, I'd come into contact with him, I think, in 93. Uh, the UFO world had never heard of him, but he was at that point starting to work on what became a book called The Day After Roswell, and he claimed very intricate knowledge about Roswell. He had been working at a, a very exclusive uh, office in the Pentagon that basically claims that they distributed bits and pieces of crash retrieval material to U.S. labs and U.S. Uh, uh, companies so that they could develop technology based on that. So when I first met uh, Phil um, Corso, we reached an agreement. I was going to write his book. And then we had a, a, um, a, a, a ticket that he would come out to Las Vegas and we were going to interview him, put him on camera. Suddenly uh, he gets an agent. That deal goes away. And I lost touch with him. But in 96, early 96, as Bigelow was looking for ideas, I thought, well, here's one. Maybe you could reach out to Corso take these brainiacs who work for you uh, along and see what they think. Well, that's what we did. I reached out to Corso. A group of us flew to Florida where he lived, met with him. I, I recorded a couple of hours of that conversation on a little camera I had. Two weeks later, they brought him back out to Las Vegas where another group of NIDS people, including Jacques Vallée, questioned him for hours. We recorded that as well. So that was the kind of uh, projects that we did back then. I was strictly a, an outside consultant to NIDS but I was allowed to be a fly on the wall. So I was allowed to develop relationships with a lot of the key people who were there. And that led to so many great things through the, through the rest of my life that I'm sure we can get into. 
So in terms of um, when you were with NIDS and when Robert Bigelow was creating that, coincidentally, he was also purchasing Skinwalker Ranch uh, in 96 from uh, a ranch family that bought it, wanting it to be their dream uh, resort. You know, it was uh, very uh, lush and well watered. There was cattle. There was a couple of homesteads and it was their their dream home. And uh, I heard you mention in a, another interview that the people that lived there were upstanding citizens. You know, the lady worked for the school board, I think you said. The husband was a very hunter, fisherman, outdoorsy, not scared of animals. The kids were straight guns. students. Yeah. yeah, they had guns. Like this is, uh, and you know, by the time they'd only been there a couple of years, and by the time Robert Bigelow came, they were all sleeping in the same room of a house, completely emotionally and psychologically tortured. Uh, from what the hell had been happening, like it just crumbled these people, and so coincidence. Like if if Robert Bigelow's looking for more solid sources than just giving out money willy nilly to anybody with ideas, uh, what a perfect little lab to buy. It's the the best ant farm in the world to really study some of this phenomenon, and the list of phenomenon is more diverse than anything else you can talk about in the UAP world. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't think uh, Robert Bigelow uh, had any idea about the depth and breadth of the weirdness that, that was at that ranch. I mean, he was primarily interested in UFOs. You know, there are some scattered reports at that point about other phenomena, uh, Bigfoot, cattle mutilations, things of that sort. But he went there because it was a UFO hotspot. That was his interest. He sent a team down there. They went to, to the property, met with, we call them the Gorman family. And you're right. They were salt of the earth, rock solid family that the dad was a college educated expert in the insemination of cattle and in breeding hybrid cattle that were very expensive animals. He was a world class hunter, a, a gamesman and, uh, you know, and, and was afraid of nothing. His wife was a vice president of a bank in town. The two kids were straight A students. So they moved to that property in 94 had no idea about the reputation of the area, let alone that specific property, and they intended to spend the rest of their lives there. Fast forward to 20 months later, they couldn't wait to get out. By the time Bigelow and his team arrived at the ranch to meet with the rancher, that family was all sleeping on the ground, on, on the floor, in the same room at night because of uh, for protection. So they all be together because they'd been absolutely terrorized for the previous 20 months. You know, in the Uinta Basin, has been a UFO hotspot for as long as people have lived there. You know, the research that was done later by uh, Bigelow and others uh, documented that. There's a guy named uh, Junior Hicks who'd been a, a science teacher in the neighborhood. He'd been a science teacher for 45 years. I think he just died about two years ago. But he had become the unofficial historian of all things UFO in that basin. And there were hundreds and hundreds of cases. As his students would, would grow up and become adults, they'd reach out to him when they saw things. And some, by some estimates, as many as 80 or 90 percent of the people who live in the Uinta Basin have seen it or somebody else in their families have seen it. And by it, I mean craft in the sky, weird stuff. But it wasn't just UFOs. That was the focus of a book called the Utah UFO Display that came out in the 70s, which established beyond any doubt, I think, based on Junior Hicks's cases, that it was, in fact, a UFO hotspot and had been going on for maybe hundreds of years. But there was a lot more that was not investigated. That was the weirdness that we now know associated with Skinwalker Ranch. Bigelow goes there, puts his team on the ground. They somehow talk this rancher into staying on as the ranch manager while his family moved away to escape whatever the hell this was there that had been terrorizing them. And, um, and then they set up shop. They put up cameras. They had all kinds of sensor gear to try to document whatever was going on there. And then quickly they learned this went way beyond UFOs far, far beyond anything that they'd ever experienced before. 
As I said, when I started, the prevailing paradigm at the time was UFOs represent alien technology, extraterrestrials coming here from some other planet to visit us and take samples and abduct people once in a while. That entirely changed. That totally was blown away by what happened at the ranch. And, and again, because I was friends with Robert Bigelow, became friends with Colum, Eric Davis, Hal Putoff, I was allowed to be a fly on the wall for a lot of what they did. Couldn't publicize it. I couldn't go with a story on it. But, uh, you know, as always with uh, Bigelow, the understanding was he allows me to know about this stuff. And eventually my intention was to go forward with it, to publicize it. It sometimes took a long time, you know, with the, the, the Skinwalker stuff. I couldn't talk about it for seven years. Uh, there had been a couple of, uh, of newspaper articles. I think the Deseret News uh, had done a couple of pieces about the rancher and some of what he's experiencing. But the vast, uh, the weirdest stuff, the strangest incidents uh, that had happened had not been made public. When I started hearing about this stuff, I didn't know what to think. I mean, I had no idea what to make of this. I never looked at poltergeists or something like that. And to, to be frank, uh, we don't know that it's poltergeists at all. It just it sort of got lumped in with that because it's comparable to those kind of incidents that have been reported around the world throughout human history. We don't know what it is, but that's sort of the mental uh, category that people put this stuff into. But there was some kind of a, an intelligence at the ranch. There is no question about that. Sometimes you could see it, it manifest itself in different ways physically. Sometimes it was psychic. Um, the people who were there, including the NIDS team, felt that they were always being watched, that whatever it was, was always one step ahead of them. It knew what they were going to do before they did it. There were, if you've seen Brandon Fugel and his team in the Secret of Skinwalker Ranch TV series, they've now put on camera a lot of what was happening to the NIDS guys right off the bat is that, you know, Compasses would spin out of control. Um, batteries would die. Cameras would die. Equipment would malfunction. Things would disappear. This is sort of like what happened to the ranch family when they were first there. You know, they, things would move around. The wife would take a, a shower every morning. She'd go into the bathroom, lock the door, put a towel and a hairbrush on the cabinet, go in, take a shower, come out. Well, she comes out one day, the door is still locked but the towel and the hairbrush are gone. They found the hairbrush, I think, in the freezer. Things would move around in the house, equipment. Uh, the ranchers outside, he would dig a post hole, uh, used a post hole digger, heavy piece of equipment to dig these holes to put fencing in. He stops to take, uh, wipe his brow, take a sip of water, looks around. The, the, the post hole digger, the device is gone. They found it a couple of weeks later up in a cottonwood tree. Um, a giant, uh, an entire uh, cord of wood moved like six inches. Uh, you know, strange little things like that. And they always felt they were being watched. They would, at night, they would feel the ground rumble. It, they would hear sounds, metallic sounds coming from the ground as if there was some kind of a steel mill or an underground railroad. Sometimes the entire pasture at night would, would be lit up by bolts of light that come out of the sky. Occasionally, they said there would be bolts of light that seemed to come out of the ground. They saw every imaginable shape of UFO that you could, you could possibly describe sombreros, uh, classic flying saucer sombrero things that would fly right into Skinwalker Ridge. They would see uh, things that look like an F-117 stealth fighter that would float silently over the property. Uh, they had a ring of lights, like almost multicolored Christmas lights around this thing, and it would shine down bolts of light as if it was looking for something on the property. There was one night where the, the wife was at home alone, 
she'd come home and there was these two strange creatures, a gigantic dog with a tiny head, and then a huge wolf, bigger than the wolf that they first saw on the day they first moved in, standing there at the front gate watching her as she went through the gate. She hustles onto her house, kind of scared. She calls her husband, who was away from the property at the time, says, something really strange is going on here. I need you to come home. He was a couple hundred miles away trying to sell some cattle. He jumps in his car, starts driving. In the meantime, she's peeking out the, the, the curtains in the ranch house. And there out in the pasture, about 50 yards from the house, is a UFO that lands. It sits there, lands, and it uh, a, a doorway opens. This light comes spilling out into the pasture. And there, there looks like what is preposterous, but it looks like a desk right in the middle of this, this office of this UFO. And as she's watching in terror, this gigantic form, like a nine-foot-tall Darth Vader, walks up to the desk and sits behind it and is just staring at her. Again, she calls her husband, tries to get him to even rush even faster. She closes the curtain, and uh, they didn't know what to make of this. When the husband gets home, he finds the indentations where this thing had sat down, and he finds these size 14 shoe prints that are in the in the mud there. It really physically happened. So the, the investigations by NIDS and then later by OSAP or Bass were very frustrating because you'd have physical evidence that something happened. But it was really hard to nail down, and nothing ever happened the same. Uh, there would be things that would happen just outside of the site of the cameras. There would be things that happened where the cameras were disabled. There was one incident where they had a camera up on top of a telephone pole that would have a broad view of the of the property. And there were other cameras like that uh, as well on other poles. Something got tired of being watched, and it went up that pole and ripped the shreds, this camera. And not only the camera was disabled, but the wiring that went down the telephone pole had been secured by a, a plastic uh, device. And then that was secured with tape. All that was ripped up and was gone. The NIDS team realizes, hey, we've got another camera that should have an angle on this. We could see what went up there. Was it an animal? Was it a person? Well, they go back, they back time it. They look at the point where the camera was disabled. Whatever did it was invisible. Uh, there were invisible objects that went through their cattle. There were uh, horrible mutilation incidents. There was one night in a blinding snowstorm when something went in and killed all the cats on the property. There was another incident where the rancher is on the phone, I think, to Bigelow at the time, and his three big dogs are snapping and jumping at this blue orb that was, we could talk about that further too, called Blue Meanies is our nickname for them. But they, this thing is staying just outside the snapping jaws of these dogs and it's leading him across the property into this brushy area. And the rancher goes, hey, I got to go. Something's happened here. Hangs up the phone and then he hears these shrieks from his three dogs. They're gone. And in the morning, he all he found was a greasy, three greasy spots with some loose hairs where these dogs have been vaporized. There were cryptid creatures that appeared that would attack their animals. For example, um, they came home one day. And this thing, this heavily muscled-looking, hyena-looking thing, but with a big bushy tail like a fox and a big long claws, was toying with one of their horses. The horse is jumping up and down. This thing is scratching on its legs. They really did whatever it was. It left claw marks on this horse. The rancher jumps out of his truck and goes running toward it, yelling. And this creature leaves the, the corral, runs up Skinwalker Ridge, ducks behind a rock, and is gone. They had an incident where they had these, they had lost, I think, 14 head of cattle, very expensive animals. 
And the rancher is saying to his wife, well, look, uh, we lose any of these bulls. We got these four prize bulls, 2,000 pound animals, fearless, fierce, ferocious animals, very expensive. And they're all in the corral. And the rancher is in, his, in the truck with his wife. They're going to town to get supplies, come back in 40 minutes. But he says to his wife as he leaves, if something happens to one of those bulls, we'll go under. We'll lose everything. They come back in 35, 40 minutes. All four of the bulls are gone. They're panicking. Where did they go? I mean, there's only one road into this ranch, one way in, one way out. They jump out and start looking for the bulls, trying to track them down. In the corral is a, a trailer. Uh, it was an old trailer, a white trailer um, with only one door in. And he would use it to store uh, tools, things of that sort, and feed. At the top of the trailer is a little grate. And he peeks in just out of the out of the blue, decides, well, what the heck, I'll look in there. They look. He looks into the, the grate at the top of the trailer. All four bulls are inside. They're crammed in because it's not that big. They're all crammed in side to side and kind of in a trance, he says. He yells to his wife, I found the bulls. They're in here. Now, the door, the only door that's there is still locked. It's secured by this really thick uh, wire. There's no way to get those bulls into that trailer. You couldn't do it with a forklift. You couldn't do it with an army of people. How they got in there was as if they dematerialized. As soon as the rancher yells to the wife, hey, I found them, they wake up out of this trance, start kicking and moving around. They knocked a, a hole in the wall and then they got out. When the NIDS team got there to investigate, normally they were there all the time, but this weekend they were gone. The entire corral had been magnetized. Whatever technology was used to take those bulls from the corral and stick them in that trailer, um, it magnetized these metal poles. So, you know, None of this makes sense. Uh, it, how does it fit together? The commonality was Skinwalker Ranch, the Uinta Basin, and it seemed like whatever the intelligence was, was messing with them. It, it wanted to generate a reaction. It seemed to fee, feed on fear. It, it wanted to get an emotional response, and it was messing with their heads. The other way to look at it, as, as Colm and I did when we wrote The Hunt for the Skinwalker, is it seemed to be a learning curve. It was trying to demonstrate that all these different kinds of paranormal phenomena, paranormal, I'm using air quotes around it, the things that we all consider separate mysteries, Bigfoot, cryptid creatures, cattle mutilations, poltergeists, um, you know, all those things were all happening in one, one spot. And it seemed as if this intelligence was telling us they're all related. Uh, it's up to you to figure out how. I'm sorry if I got off on too much of a tangent there, but. Uh, I think the strangest thing for me and the scariest thing is what they, what you call the hitchhiker effect, where yes. it's not only people that were there experiencing things, it seemed to latch onto them and go home with them to their families and just torment everybody. And uh, I, I, I've heard you mention that uh, for years, you would take home rocks and things like that from the ranch, <laughs> trying to spur that type of phenomenon on. And then it happened. And, you know, if you poke the bear enough times, one day the bear wakes up, right? So tell us a little bit about the hitchhiker effect and some of the strangeness behind that. So, you know, it was not immediate obvious that that's what was going on in the beginning. There were a couple of incidents, but it wasn't really a pattern until later. You know, Eric Davis, a physicist who had an encounter on the property, uh, it's it lingered. Whatever it was that he saw, that was, I'll describe it, it was a giant black cloud um, that moved through the trees. He and Colum had, had seen it one night when they're walking across the property, and it spoke to them. It sort of took him over. It uh there was another voice that came out of him that column reported hearing it was watching them and they were not welcome is what it said. And um, that 
whatever it was that got into his head lingered with him for a while. That was not the most dramatic uh, sort of hitchhiker effect, though, uh, that we would come to learn about. Uh, one of the uh, primary pr primary incidents involved the Gorman family. They finally left. They got the hell out of Dodge, got out of there, moved to a different state, and it followed them there. They had a very dramatic encounter that all four of the family members saw involving a, a, a ghost vehicle, sort of, that, that smashed into them and went right through them. Uh, so it followed them. It stuck around for a couple of years. I don't know if it's still with them or not. Uh, but it it has lingered for more than a decade with others. So the NIDS guys start noticing that there is something that follows them home and they have eruptions of activity at, at, in their homes, in their personal lives when they're not on the property. And you're right, I did try to engage with it. I brought home rocks and bits and pieces of this and that uh, as souvenirs, but also to see, well, will something happen? And it didn't for quite a long time. NIDS goes away after 2002, 2003. Uh, because there really wasn't much else to investigate. Uh, you know, whatever was going on on the ranch, it sort of decided it was taking its toys and going home. It didn't want to be hunted. It didn't want to be stalked. So it went underground and they basically had nothing else to investigate. There might be something here or there, a, a, an odd sighting around the ranch, some kind of strange phenomenon, but not enough to keep the team there to justify the expense or, and the time that it took to invest. Um, so that's why we were allowed to write the book. You know, I'd wanted to publicize it uh, for a long time. In 2002, I got the green light from Bigelow to go ahead and write a newspaper article. That exploded, went all over the world for this little weekly news magazine, that uh, a newspaper that's published in Las Vegas, Las Vegas Mercury. And that really opened the floodgates to us to do the book. Colm and I um, had been making notes and preparing for the possibility for a long time. 2005 is when we finally put out Hunt for the Skinwalker. And then, you know, then the story went all over the world. And, you know, people had a lot of trouble believing it. Well, yeah, welcome to the club. So did I. I didn't know what to make of this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's how do you how do you process it all? What do you make of it? Uh, I didn't know. They didn't know. And then uh, we can jump to OSAP. But uh, there were consequences as a result of NIDS shutting down that eventually the things came back, you know. And the government took notice too. When you wrote your book, that's when you were contacted by Dr. James Lukatsky. And uh, people, you know, you think that this is just fringe stuff or, you know, for the scientific uh, or, or people that like science fiction and that sort of thing. The government was paying attention. And like you said, they, since the 40s, they've been interested. And whether it's been public or not, that's continued all the way through. Uh, and, um, you know, to, get to the point where it became OSAP and then later on ATIP as well. So it's not just like weird phenomenon and, you know, cool things to talk about in documentaries. It's legitimately connected. And hence your book, you know, Skinwalkers at the, at the Pentagon, like the government takes interest in this. It's strange enough that they need to, to continue that, you know, and they're not scared to spend money. Like what was the budget for OSAP? $22 million something yep. like that. So, so maybe uh, talk a little bit about that. How, where did that come from government uh, interest wise? Yeah. So who could imagine that what started as Bigelow's private organization NIDS and my involvement because of the series we did about Lazar becoming friends with him, that it would lead to all that we've seen now. What is unfolding now in the UAP UFO field is because of that work. There's just no question about it. Because of the NIDS effort, the book that we wrote, uh, we have so many changes in, in terms of the UFO, UAP topic. Uh, in 2005, we put out the book. 2007, 
the word starts filtering out among intelligence analysts in DC and at Pentagon. One of those who read the book was Dr. Jim Lekatsky, who was a rocket scientist, analyst, intelligence analyst for the DIA. Uh, he reads the book, he shares it with some other people who actually uh, are included in the new book. They take it to Iraq, they uh, pass that book around to intelligence folks who are in Iraq in the, in the green zone, come back and Lukatsky was so intrigued, he asked his, uh, his superiors at DIA, hey, can I go after this? And they said, yeah. He writes to Bigelow, asks for permission to visit the, the ranch, and he comes out, flies to Las Vegas, they go to the ranch together. They're there for a little over two hours, but within the first half an hour, 40 minutes, Lukatsky had an encounter. Uh, he had a sighting that seemed to be created specifically for him. A lot of people go to the property, don't see anything. Me, for example, uh, you know, I've been there dozens of times over the years. I never saw a UFO. I did see a, a light at one point during one of our visits, but who knows what it was. Have you ever felt anything, George? Like, a, like yeah, a presence? Yeah, I, I feel good there. Yeah, it's interesting. It was maybe by by the time I was there, I had been there six, five, six times. Uh, we're sitting around, uh, Robert Bigelow and I, with the ranch uh, managers, the husband and wife, and one of the neighbors, and kind of talking about recent events. And I said, I blurted this out. I said, I, I don't want to sound stupid. I know that this is really scary, and people have been frightened out of their wits by things here. But I feel good on this property. I feel good. I, I feel energized, um, uh, you know, alert and active, and I don't feel intimidated or scared at all. And then it passed around. Some of the other people who were there had the same experience. The ranch manager, an older man who uh, at that time had been there for a couple of years, he and his wife, and he said the same thing. He said, I get so jazzed about this. He says, I I'm, I feel like a teenager. I start work in the morning. I'm, it's like I put my finger in an electric socket. I'm, uh, I work all day. I don't want to stop. He, he had the same experience. Not everyone has that. It seems like the property sizes you up. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. People who it's go like the there, movie Cocoon when everybody starts, you know, feeling younger and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but it's almost that on the land. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, but some people who go there with ill intent, uh, people who are they pack guns. I'm going to take this on. I'll show them a real cocky kind of attitude, or who go there and are scared and have their own personal reasons for it. The ranch sizes you up. It it recognizes that stuff. Maybe that's why I have not been allowed to see anything. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, Bigelow, I think for a long time, never saw anything on the property either. My photographer, Matt Adams, is another one. But the others who did have experiences uh, learned that they were started taking things home with them. Um, I didn't know what to think of that until it happened to me. Uh, not to me, but to my wife. And, and that is sort of the pattern that Colm Kelleher describes in the in the new book is, this thing spreads like a virus through people's family. There was a guy that we call Axelrod who worked for an intel as an intelligence uh, officer, very experienced, high-ranking guy. He's one of five intelligence agents who went to the property during the OSAP bass period who had an experience there and then took it home. All five of them had an experience. All five of them took it home with them, and it spreads to their family. Uh, Axelrod was one of three badass people, combat uh, tested, very tough people who were on the ranch. I think it was 2009. They're walking in the middle homestead at night. It's very dark out there. 
uh, on a, on a, even a, a moonlit night, it's it's dark. They're walking down the middle homestead and suddenly the temperature drops like 20, 25 degrees. It gets cold. It's like they walked into a cold zone. And then they see this thing in right in the path in front of them, a black hole, this big black hole in the sky. It's darker than dark. And they are, they froze. They I, I can't remember if they were frozen physically or they just froze mentally, but they stopped there and it was communicating with them, telling them that they are not welcome. They're being watched and they're not welcome. They all start backing up. All three of those people, tough as nails, take this thing home with them. Um, for Axelrod, he he goes home, and uh, within a matter of weeks, his family start experiencing these things. This is what we call the hitchhiker. Uh, his wife was the first to see it. She's she's looking out, doing the dishes, looking out in the yard, and there, leaning on a tree, is a wolf. It's like seven, eight feet tall, leaning. Its front paws or arms are folded like this. It's leaning on a tree. And it, it is aware that she's seen it. She doesn't know what to think. She doesn't tell anybody about it. It was a couple of days later, her kids, these two young men, are looking out a different window at the same area, and they see it, and they scream for their mom. She comes rushing out. They all go outside, I guess, or to look at it, and this thing takes off. And it's not running away like a wolf on four legs. It's running away on two legs. They recall seeing the leaves uh, where it's kicking up leaves running down the street. They're kind of freaked out about it. Then inside the house, they start seeing orbs, these balls of light, blue orbs like what had been seen at the ranch, different colored orbs. They're hearing heavy footsteps like the ranch family had had at Skinwalker. Uh, then they start seeing these entities, these black entities at the bottom of their bed at night. Scares the hell out of them. Yeah. Well, of course it yeah. would. And then, uh, you know, they don't really tell anybody about it. They don't know what to make of it. This guy still has a, a security clearance, still working at the Pentagon. He doesn't want this to get around, but the, the trickster stuff that starts happening. They had a really big dog, big, tough dog that ends up on the roof of a three-story house. It's on the roof. There's no way that dog can get up there. It was just whatever the intelligence was, was messing with them. And then the kids start telling their friends about it, and it spreads to their friends. Uh, it's it, The more it spreads, the more diluted the, tech, the uh, phenomena become, but it's almost traveling, as Colm says, like a virus. Um, that, that guy, Axelrod, it's now been 11 years, 12 years. It's still going on. It's still going on for his family, wow. both in that location and other locations where they've lived. Uh, how do you explain it? Uh, you know, UFOs are hard enough. UAP, it's hard enough to get serious people to take a look at it. But when you throw in this weirdness, it becomes a mess. That said, you have to follow the evidence where it leads. All that was, it makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, George, I didn't want to cut you off. It was just what you're saying there with this ongoing phenomenon. It makes sense why there'd be so many different programs that seem to lap over the other, you know, NIDS to OSAP. And, you know, they, they have over 200,000 reports with OSAP, one of them being the Skinwalker Ranch, which is, as I understand, a huge report. Uh, they have a vast 10-month report. So they took everything that Robert Bigelow was doing and all that data I mean, you know of many stories of people impacted on a personal level and your colleagues in your circle. Imagine what the government knows, right? There's 200,000 reports and, and tying that into your new book. Like when I first got it, I was super pumped. And then I read on the back and it says, there's a disclosure, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon has been reviewed by the U.S. Department of Defense and cleared for public release. So my initial thought was, 
oh no, the government censored it. Like, what is that? I wanted to get the nitty gritty on this thing as a huge Skinwalker fan, but the government went through it. And then I've heard you on other interviews say, yeah, we wanted to make this thing deep and thick with information and lots more reports and more specifics, but they went through it and basically said what you could or couldn't do. So to me, this becomes way more intriguing because it tells me that you hit a nerve, you're onto something, it's legit, and it's worthy of some kind of censorship. If it was science fiction, they wouldn't care what you put in the book. So it's so credible and so accurate that they had to oversee it even being published. So I found that very intriguing. Well, I mean, everybody who worked for Bass, which was that's the organization that Bigelow created, that's the contractor that got the contract for OSAP. That's the name of the that's the acronym for the program operated by the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA. Sorry for all the acronyms, but it's a DIA program called OSAP. BAS is the organization that gets the contract. They hired 50 people, full-time people, investigators, ex-government, ex-cops, investigators, computer scientists. It's the biggest UFO program that we know of. Maybe there's something bigger somewhere, but that's the biggest. I mean, you look at OSAP, which might've had five people part-time, uh, none of it was a full-time job for them. Um, you had Project Blue Book. You remember seeing the, the PR photos of their staff, six or seven people, tiny compared to this. And it, it started as a UFO program. That was its primary focus. That's the way it was sold to DIA is this technology is something we don't have. We needed to see if we can figure out what it is, whether it's a threat to us, and can we duplicate it? So that was a primary function. But they had the flexibility and DIA was well aware of it, to follow the evidence where it led. It takes courage to do this. You're not just looking at UFOs, which somehow UFOs are now respectable. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a topic we can dig our teeth into. But all the other stuff, that's woo. That's not respectable. Well, OSAP, Bass, had the courage to follow the evidence where it led. And where it led is these phenomena are all interrelated. We don't understand why. Um but they, where you have UFOs, you have this poltergeist-type activity. You have cattle mutilations. You have tears in the sky where things come in and out from other realities, other worlds. Um, you know, nobody's comfortable with this. No one is happy that it led to all this weirdness, just a, a UFO study that leads to something much, much stranger. No one wanted that to happen. It just, that's where the evidence led. That was, that's the brilliance of this OSAP program is they had the courage and the approval to go ahead and follow it wherever it leads. And that's what they did. And they, they, it's amazing what they did in just two years. You know, it was supposed to be a five-year program, and then we can talk about the reasons that it went away. But in that two years, they created, as you said, the world's biggest UFO database. Gigantic. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that the public will ever get to see it. A lot of the information that's in that database is public, but they brought it all together. So they have, for example, all the MUFON files. They have all the blue book files, all the stuff that they could get from government, our government and other governments. For example, uh, Brazil, uh, the OSAP team sent people to Brazil multiple times. They got the Brazilian Air Force UFO files, which are extensive. Colaris, the incident down there where people were injured, maybe killed, that information all went into the database. The Russian files that I brought back, hundreds of pages. I made two trips there in the 90s, hundreds of pages. I gave it to them because you know I had done uh, had interpreters look at this material, but didn't really know how to evaluate it, how to put it in context. They did. All that information is in there. They had four full-time interpreters. They had uh, military people to help explain, uh, put the pieces together about how large of an organization that was. 
all that into this database. I shouldn't call it database, it's a data warehouse. The person who was in charge of that data warehouse, which is multiple databases, was Jacques Ballet. He designed this amazing apparatus for putting it all together in a way that it could be not just collected, but collated. Had OSAP been allowed to continue, the next step was to put artificial intelligence, AI, on top of the whole thing so that you could draw connections, uh, correlations between all these seemingly seemingly disparate events. That was stopped. It didn't happen. But the raw data, the, the case files, is still there. It's an amazing, amazing accomplishment in just two years. It was stopped. Um, Skinwalker was viewed as a living laboratory. It's not where the $22 million was spent. They had a presence there. They continued to investigate it, but not just the ranch. More importantly, they devoted resources to the area around the ranch. They sent investigators out into the community to talk to the neighbors, to collect. You you think Skinwalker's weird. The stories about what happened to other people in the Uinta Basin are would freak you out. Um, that information was collected for OSAP. It's in the files. Uh, we wanted to make as much as public as we could, but it's it's sensitive because the people who provided the information did so, excuse me, did so with the understanding that it would not be made public. Uh, the same thing is true for the medical database. One of the dirds, one of the reports written that's been made public as part of the OSAP program uh, was Kit Green's study of physical effects on people who get close to a UFO. This is a very profound work. And, you know, we describe in the book some very unusual encounters that people have had that prove deleterious to their health. I mean, significant major health impacts of coming into contact with UFOs, including these blue orbs that flew through the body of a, of a professional uh, who was driving with a with their daughter uh, in Oregon. Uh, the, the NIDS team, excuse me, the OSAT team was able to follow up. It spent two years tracking the medical consequences for this, this person who had this encounter and did so with dozens of other people. That's an amazing body of information that was put together for OSAP by Bass that the public generally has not seen yet. A, a lot of them, a lot of them develop these autoimmune disease or yeah. disorders, right? Because of being in close contact or having these orbs go through them. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I think one lady got lupus and like Hashimoto's syndrome as well. Yeah, really odd, odd, obscure diseases. And, you know, this also rings true for me. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, uh, personal stuff, but I told you the hitchhiker came to my house. It came to Robert Bigelow's house. It went to Colin Kelleher's house. It came to me. I had never seen anything that I know of um, that I can remember uh, in terms of UFOs, but my wife started seeing them. She saw these blue orbs over our house. I'm downstairs sitting here. She's upstairs in our courtyard and called me and said, come on up. You got to see these things. By the time I got up there, they were gone. And that's kind of a, a giddy kind of experience. It was kind of cool. Wow. UFOs over our house. And then, then it got not so pleasant because something came into our room and it interacted with a way with her that scared the hell out of me, just really upset her. Same exact thing happened to Mrs. Bigelow, who passed away two years ago. Something very similar happened at Colin Keller's house and to other people who'd spent a lot of time at the ranch. You know, and it made me feel a little guilty because I'd been bringing all this stuff home and trying to engage with it. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I haven't been to the ranch in a couple of years. I'm not sure I'll go back, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't want it to spread and cause further problems at my house. But there are some medical consequences for my wife that may or may not be related. That took courage to look into all that stuff. We wanted to put the story out. 
didn't want OSAP to die, but once it was killed for a variety of reasons, um, we wanted to put the story out. I had been sitting on this stuff for a long time. You know, when the New York Times story came out and it's going to reveal this thing about the program, and it turns out to be they did a story on ATIP, which is not this program. It's It has not the, very little to do with it. Had some to do with it. Uh, it's sort of a, a successor to OSAP, a much smaller successor. Uh, the New York Times did that story, which I had I deferred to them. You know, I could have done, gone with something, had a lot of information. I didn't. I, I, I'm glad, in a sense, that because of their platform, their reputation, the story had a lot more punch to it. It was taken more seriously by the members of Congress, by higher ups in the government and the and the general public, I think, than anything I could have put out. So it was really I have great respect for Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal. Uh, who co-wrote the story with Helene. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it led to where it's led, but it was wrong. Yeah. You know, we can get into that. It was incorrect. OSAP was the program. If it had been allowed to continue, who knows where we'd be now, you know, but it wasn't, it was killed. And it's a shame. All that information sitting in that database, 98% of it has never been seen by the public. So we set out to write what we could for the book. We had to get approval because all those guys who worked on the program had security clearances. The agreement with the DIA was you don't publish anything unless we sign off on it. So we wrote a, wrote the book, went right up to the edge of what we could make public. It was still just a small percentage of really all the data. Uh, we included a lot of, of uh, specific incidents. The names had to be changed. The names of personnel still attached to the Pentagon had to be changed. In general, they let us write what we wanted with only some changes, some things that were were kicked out of the book. It took 14 months, 14 months to get approval of the Pentagon. This is not the Pentagon saying we agree with everything that's in the book. Uh, they're not endorsing it, uh, but they are allowing us to report it based on the agreement that had been worked out between Mr. Bigelow and uh, DIA. Yeah. So since 2017, a lot of people know about this information now. There's History Channel document uh, documentaries, as well as the Skinwalker Ranch, which is now owned by Brendan Fugel. And, and you see Lou Elizondo on his unidentified program. So kind of how has it come from OSAP and now ATIP, which, you know, Lou Elizondo stepped down from because he really wanted to spread the message. How has, has there been any cooperation there? Do they still have that cache of information that they can use? Like, was it all for nothing or is that still being hidden somewhere uh, and people using it to kind of fuel the motion forward? Oh, it's, it's still very much there. Uh, we are told, and I think we mentioned it in the book, is that the current intelligence agencies are using that database. ATIP did have access to it. Uh, you know, Lou Elizondo, as we described, he was interacting with the OSAP people. He had been approached to be a counterintelligence officer for OSAP. Uh, you know, provided, uh, you know, Senator Harry Reid, whose uh, sponsorship got OSAP, got the $22 million, wanted to create a special access program, a SAP. And in 2009, he wrote to the Pentagon, said, hey, I think they've made a lot of progress in the last year. We'd like to make it an, a SAP so that there's fewer eyes on it, so we don't have to compete for the money every year, so it can continue indefinitely. And of course, somebody leaked that letter. Suddenly, the rest of the Pentagon, which had no idea that this program was underway, they had no idea. It was compartmentalized. Suddenly, everyone knows about it. And they start asking questions. Uh, hey, maybe we should go after this this uh, money. Others were worried. Gosh, what if this gets out that we're involved in study of UFOs and ghosts and creatures? It's going to be on the front page of New York Times. It'd be a big embarrassment. Of course, it did end up on the front page of New York Times. 
And then others uh, within the Pentagon, uh, these religious fundamentalists in key positions were concerned when they read about what was going on at Skinwalker, they thought it was demonic. They thought that by studying this, by engaging with it, by interacting with it, that we were inviting it into the world, that we were re, you know, potentially going to wreak havoc on humanity by these demonic, satanic spirits that would come in. And you'd think, well, that's pretty ridiculous for high-level intelligence people to be basing national policy on their religious beliefs. But the fact is now, you know, looking back on it, we don't know what this intelligence is. Maybe it is demonic or satanic or something like that. We don't know. We'd like to, we started out thinking it was extraterrestrial. We don't think that anymore. It doesn't fit. And maybe it's extraterrestrial, interdimensional, time travelers, demons, all mixed into one. But we don't really know. That was why OSAP should have been allowed to continue. Uh, it was cut off before it could really get answers. But it made incredible progress, you know, for a while. It, it begs the question of whether or not these, um, you know, UAP show up on the ranch because of the activity that's taking place on the ranch or if the activity on the ranch is taking place because these UAPs are showing up. So, or they might not even be related, they're just related somehow, but they, uh, you know, it begs the question whether or not the activity is taking place and they're just monitoring. You know, I, uh, I've sort of, my perspectives has, have changed several times, you know, since all this stuff, I, I don't really, I know a lot more and understand a lot less. So whatever I, uh, offer as a suggestion here is just that a suggestion. I'm not as smart as these other guys who are have PhDs and are taking on these big questions. I've been around it a long time, but they're these big brainiacs who have tackled these these issues and questions understand a lot better than I have. So I, I you know, take that with a grain of salt. I, I think that the uh, the phenomenon is there for us to see. I think it happens on the ranch. I don't. I'm not sure it would happen if there's nobody there to watch it. It seemed to be for us to see it. You know, you would ask, uh, does any of this information carry over from OSAP to ATIP and beyond? The answer is yes. Perfect example of that is Tic Tac. I, I tend to think that Tic Tac, that object was sitting there for us to see it. You, you can't tell me there's a giant nuclear strike force, at, uh, you know, this giant uh, aircraft carrier in a battle group sitting there and this UFO is out zipping around, floating over something that's uh, boiling the sea oh, gosh, oh, is that a, a U.S. warplane? I didn't know you guys were in the neighborhood. I don't believe it. I, I think they knew that. I think it was a performance, which is what a lot of yeah. what happened at the ranch seemed to be a performance, a display. It's something there for us to see. That Tic Tac case was the first big investigation by OSAP. The world knows about it, not because of ATIP, but because of OSAP. You know, they collected the files. They created the, 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 the video they got. Uh, they secured it and analyzed it. There's a report in the OSAP files that I have seen uh, that is remarkable in terms of the detail they went into in an analysis of the Tic Tac incident and its capabilities. That was the very first uh, thing that they really launched. And the reason the world knows about it is because of OSAP. Yes, Lou Elizondo interacted with the, the OSAP guys, um, but it was long before ATIP existed. The first time the ATIP name, that acronym, appeared. It was in Harry Reid's um, letter to the Pentagon in 2009. And they, they used that name and just made it up because they didn't want the rest of the Pentagon to know what the real name was. So they couldn't come after it. Uh, they got out anyway. But, uh, you know, ATIP, after OSAP went away, Lou Elizondo, to his credit, uh, resurrects it on a much smaller scale. He keeps some of the same people who had interacted with and worked with OSAP, different agencies, 
some of them of whom had been to Skinwalker Ranch, some of whom worked directly on the Tic Tac report. He kept them in the loop and they informally had this confederacy of, of experts who would take a look at new cases of UFOs involving the military. That was their purview. They didn't look at any of these broader things that, that we're talking about. To my knowledge, I don't know that they produced a single report. Have you ever seen one? Uh, I, I have never seen an ATEP written report of any kind, and no one else has either. I am not disparaging that. I, I have great admiration for Lou. He's a friend of mine. He has single-handedly changed this uh, topic, flipped it on its head, has blazed a path at considerable ex uh, personal expense and, and repercussions to him. It's it's tortured him and has been a mess for his family. He, he has great, I have great respect for him. But, you know, a lot of the people around that have tried to diminish OSAP, pretend that it wasn't real. You know, what we need is a real program, uh, not that OSAP thing. Well, if you've got a program in government that had more than 50 full-time investigators, let me see it. If there's a program in government that produced more reports than the 100 documents that, that uh, OSAP produced, let's see it. I haven't seen it. Uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of that information that was gathered by OSAP was used by ATIP. And I think it was used by what became the UAP task force. And I think it's now in the hands of whatever this new program, this EIEIO, whatever the heck the uh, acronym is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in their hands. So it is being put to use. How much I can't say, but you know, that, that series of events, what started with NIDS, there's a direct line because before where we are now, NIDS begats OSAP, which investigates Skinwalker, looks at Tic Tac, that leads to a tip that leads to New York Times and what we have now. And, uh, you know, it's people who try to diminish the importance of this program it's because they got their own agenda. They, they they're, Maybe they're pushing their own program. I don't know. But um, I hope that your listeners will keep in mind what the true legacy of this is. And if it had been allowed to continue, we might have some answers by now. In my opinion, George, sorry, Jason, it's it's because of you. It's because of the work that you've done since the 80s. Back when, you know, you mentioned that now UFO is a topic you can sink your teeth into. Before, it, you'd be made a laughing stock of. People have had their careers destroyed, including Bob Lazar. You know, they go after you and your family and your business. And, you know, whether it's misinformation, disinformation or what, it's affected a lot of people negatively where they really had nothing to gain by coming out and more lose than win kind of thing. So I think your humility is, uh, is massive because I think if it wasn't for the work from you and a few other people over the last 35 years, yeah. it wouldn't have got so mainstream like it is now where there's programs on TV regularly recorded and you have all these big names now that are, and have, they have good intentions as well. But if it wasn't for people like you sort of you know, blazing that trail, I don't think we'd be nearly as far. I mean, you were like the James Bond of UAP studies, man. You went to Russia and smuggled out documents and, you know, shared them with NIDS. If you did that nowadays, that's a big deal, right? I mean, security was always there, but um, you're just fearless, you know? So well, that, that leads me to my question. I was going to ask you, George, like, how does that feel having had a career that long? And I, I mean, I know you've been studying this subject and you were quite, like you were saying, adamant on telling people about it, but there was still some stigma for a long time. I'm a kid from the 80s and I know the 80s, you mentioned flying saucers, people just, you know, laughed at you. Uh, same thing with the 90s, 2000s, we got a little bit more progressive and now we're like, hey, they're here. But for you to have like stuck it out that long, um, how does it feel now having the subject brought up and having people fight so hard now for more disclosure? 
you know, <laughs> after the OSAP stories and, and the Tic Tac story, and then later the OSAP stuff came out, people would say to me, well, do you feel vindicated now? And I don't know how to respond to it in that I didn't know I needed vindication. I was doing my job, you know, in the beginning, I was out on a limb pretty far by myself. Uh, it was a kind of a long, lonely slog in terms of the, you know, I see people who uh, want to take a shot at me on social media. They'll often say, well, gosh, look at what it did for your career. Well, you know, my perspective on what it did for my career might be different from how a UFO person on Twitter might see because it's done me no favors. You know, it hasn't been uh, some big boon to my career. I had a good career without UFOs. Um, and I'm, I'm known for a lot of other stories. This is the story I'm known for in UFO world. You know, people, you know me in UFO world, but outside of it, I'm known for other things. And uh, it's done my career no, no favor. I'm lucky that I've worked for KLAS for all these years because they know me and they trust me and they gave me great freedom to pursue it where it needed to be pursued. But anybody else, I think a different news organization would have stopped it a long time ago. I, it's so lucky, you know, looking back on it from this vantage point of where it's led. I, I am proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of it. But it's been it's been a tough slog. And um, and I think it probably put a cap on my career in terms of where I could go. I don't I don't mind that. I would do it the same way. Uh, I'm so fortunate to have been able to meet some of these people along the way. Um, Lazar. Robert Bigelow, Colm Kelleher, Jim Lekatsky, Lou Elizondo, and somebody else whose name we haven't mentioned is Tom DeLong. Tom DeLong, massively important to all that's unfolded now. You know, Tom DeLong creates TTSA. It gives Lou Elizondo a place to land. Lou can leave the Pentagon. He goes there. He's got a platform. Um, I don't know how the world would have been different if Tom had not created TTSA. And I know it it went away, you know, and it in the and it it fell short of the goals it set a long time ago. But having Jim Semivan, Hal Putoff, uh, DeLong, Chris Mellon, uh, the guy from Lockheed, all those guys in one place, and then getting the New York Times to do the story—that's a heavy lift. That's an amazing thing. All the credit in the world to Tom. But for me, be able to hook up to meet with Tom, uh, and then these amazing other people that he worked with. Uh, to uh, become friends with Jeremy Corbell, who's, you know, done some amazing work. We've partnered on some things. Um, Matt Adams, my photographer, who's been with me for 20, 20 plus years. I, I'm so proud of, of the work that's done and where the progress that we've made. And I appreciate the, you recognize that I have had a contribution to it, but it, you know, people who think this is one big party and it's, you know, I did it to uh, juice my career. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Well, you're not you're not out there charging people thousands of dollars for seances. I will. Night. You think I can get away with it? I'm, I'm at, happy to you know, do that. Yeah, you're still yeah, taking I mean, orders if they come in. Yeah, I, I'd probably still sign up just to hang out. But uh, yeah, obviously, some people are doing that with their careers, and you're not one of those people. And like ufology, even on Twitter, is quite a mess. I've been looking at uh, what's going on there, and people are just. They're always opinionated. That's the thing. Everybody's got an opinion, but it doesn't help uh, ufology or it doesn't help the subject forward if we're all bickering at each other, right? Over yeah, accolades or or falsehoods yeah, or that's, whatever. That's true. I mean, I, I see those conversations. I, I some sometimes after I somebody has taken shots at me for weeks at a time every day, I, I get weak and I respond. I regret it. I always regret it. You know, I just let it go. I'm glad there's a dialogue and a give and take and, and opinions. 
But to think that this is somehow today is more of a mess than it's ever been. It's always been a mess. It's always been this way. You know, it's the the most backstabbing, infighting, inbred, nasty little arena. I suppose there are other topics like that. But man, this is uh, this is a bare knuckles endeavor here. You got to have thick skin to d- dive into this. I've tried to develop that over the years, and just got to keep your your eye on the on the ball and moving forward. And, and you know. There's going to be slings and arrows. There's a there's a phrase that I've used before about uh, it's an Arab proverb: uh, the dog barks, but the caravan passes. You can't have George Knapp on the show without talking about Bob Lazar. I mean, in 1989, this guy who initially was shrouded on camera, voice distorted, this guy c- comes out of the woodwork and says the U.S. is in U.S. government is in possession of recovered craft. I know it. I've seen them firsthand. In fact, my job was to try to figure out what I could about them using my nuclear physics uh, brain. And uh, he was replacing somebody who had been killed trying to mess around with the same thing. So this guy comes to you with this story uh, and subsequently reveals himself for his own safety because they're messing with him and letting it known to uh, let it be known to him that, hey, we know where you live and go through his car and leave it like that so that he would find it and that type of thing. Um, and even to the point of drawing pictures. This is what they look like. This is how they work. They run on a strange element, 115, that wasn't even invented yet. And then 20 years later, yeah, it, it would make a reasonable fuel. You know, element 115 is Moscovium. So all of that, that's a massive question all in one, but I definitely want to get just your thoughts on that. You are a pioneer, and this sparked a lot in the UAP world was the story of Bob Lazar. What's one of those stories that just, uh, it divides people down the middle. Maybe it's not the middle or something, but there's no, there's very little gray area. People either hate them or they, or they love them. They buy it or they don't. It was always going to be that way. I, I just cut, put it in this context today, right now, as we uh, converse back and forth, um, there's a lot of discussion about metamaterials, uh, retrieved uh, unknown uh, elements, uh, crash retrievals, reverse engineering, those things are now being discussed in the halls of power, in the Pentagon, in Congress. You have members of the Senate who are asking, hey, what's the deal on this? When can we see it? Uh, you have that discussion underway in aerospace, uh, the aerospace industry, and it's being taken seriously. Well, I can tell you that 33 years ago, when it started with me and Bob Lazar, it was not taken seriously. Um, he came out at considerable personal risk. I know that people have looked at his record. So have we, you know, we've looked at it. And every six months or so, someone comes out with a new expose of Bob Lazar. Aha, he didn't go to these schools that he says. He didn't work at, uh, at uh, Los Alamos. He, he's a fraud. He's not a scientist. All that stuff. People think that they've come on something new. They're really going to blow it out of the water. It's the same stuff that started back then. And it's the same stuff we pursued. In the very first story where I introduced Bob Lazar, I reported the schools that he says he attended have no records of them. Los Alamos Lab, there he says he worked, has no records of them. Uh, his employment records have disappeared. A lot of other things have. We, we reported that from the beginning. We told that to the public and told them, make up your mind. And I went through that myself. I mean, you know, I've said it publicly yeah. a lot of times. I never believed that Bob really went to MIT and got a master's degree in the same way that anyone else would. Uh, there's a, a more complicated story there because I couldn't imagine him sitting through English lit or something like that. 
Um, you know, but for me, the question was, all right, the school records are not there. Is it possible that he exaggerated his education in order to land this cool job? And I'd say, yeah. Um, do you throw everything out? Well, if he lied about this, then you have to throw everything out. Really? Have you ever told a lie? You know, uh, does that mean that everything you've ever said is a lie? So we did our best back in those days, pre-internet, to verify parts of his background. What really got me intrigued by Bob, not just his story, his demeanor, of course, I got to know him personally. Uh, the people who know him best, even 33 years later, the people closest to him, believe him. You know, the people who would see him in real life, in at home, who know about his background and what he's done, they believe him. It's the people who are further removed who don't. I don't care. You know, I, people send me stuff about Balbazar. Did you know this and that every day? I don't care. You know, you can believe it or not. In the beginning, it was important to me. Hey, look, I've investigated the guy. Here's what we found. Here's why I believe him. Uh, in, in effect, it's like two ships passing in the night. The story is about Bob. People will find information that tends to diminish his credibility, and they like to ignore the stuff that, that buttresses his story. There's a lot of things, as you said, that he knows that he knew back then that turned out to be real. How did he know him? Um, so that's really what got me interested, you know, and, and really the, the, the nail in the coffin for me was how many people lied to me about him. Uh, you know, I get ticked off when somebody at a government agency or a government facility lies to me about something that I know they're lying about, you know, and they did. Los Alamos lied to me about him. We finally proved that they were lying. His uh, the um, the company that hired him lied to me. They promised to provide these records and didn't. Uh, people at uh, Nellis, pe people in other agencies have lied. Uh, Congressman Bill Bray, who just passed away about two months ago, when Lazar got into some criminal trouble, um, you know, he had done a lot of work at my request to try to to track this stuff down. And everywhere he went in the government circles, FBI, etc. He ran into roadblocks and they wouldn't say Bob Lazar is a fraud. They told this congressman, you don't have a need to know. That's real. That, that really happened. Um, so I understand that people are very passionate on both sides. I would just suggest there really is something interesting there. I think the Bob is telling a story that he believes to be true. Whether it is literally true or not, he is open to the possibility that maybe they messed with his head. Um, that did happen. But he passed a polygraph test. We had four different tests that were done by this polygraph examiner. He said he's telling the truth. There's no deception. People have analyzed his body language on different uh, Rogan's podcasts and things like that. If you spend time with the guy, he would have to be the most incredible liar in history to, to get away with this stuff, how he comes across. And Bob is not trying to convince anyone that his story is true. He wants nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I would drag him out and sort of twist his arm and get him to give me an update or something. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it then. On the day that I revealed his identity, this is a true story. He was in, his, he was in the, in the uh, TV station. I said, here it is. We're going to show you this picture. He grabbed the tape and tried to leave with it. He didn't want it to do. He's the most reluctant UFO messiah in history. And uh, I think he's telling the truth as he knows it. whether or not it's the literal truth or not. We may never know, but we're a lot closer to it now than we were back then. And where we can talk about metamaterials, recovered disks, crash retrievals, reverse engineering, all that stuff is right up there now. And it started with Bob. I mean, it, 
there were there were other crash retrieval stories before Bob, but he's the one that came out and talked about it. And I think it's moved the needle. Well, there's two there's two points too that for me always thought was obvious. One, you and Bob put um, Area 51 and S4 on the map. Nobody knew about this program or this place until he came out. And now it's a fact that it's there. So, you know, excuse my English there, but how the fuck did he know that? <laughs> Two, he brought people to go see this thing fly at seven o'clock at night on Wednesdays because that's when there was no traffic on the highway in the middle of nowhere. So again, how did he get that information? How did he know that they were going to fly this craft at seven o'clock at night on a Wednesday? So when you look at these little tidbits, just logically, you're like, huh. And how do you predict an element that's not even invented yet? Like I'm a science mind. And, you know, I remember in school, I memorized the periodic table of the elements because I thought it would get me better marks in that particular grade. And I got a 98 in chemistry, grade 12. So I was pretty good. But how do you predict? Okay, you could say, well, yeah, if the element, you know, periodic element table ends at 98, well, one day there will be a 101, a 102. You could do that. But to, to predict that it would be a certain element that would make a reasonable fuel for a rocket type or a nuclear reactor that you could actually use to power a craft. It's not like the properties of these things are totally contrary to that. It, it all makes sense. So for me, you're you're talking about elements that aren't invented yet. And then it comes out that, yeah, this thing exists. I, you can't, like you said, you'd have to be the greatest actor psychic liar, yeah. liar genius on the face of the earth to be able to be you know and what was in it for him he didn't benefit you know he uh he didn't make money he's not shouting from the rooftops listen to me i'm the alien guy he's super humble and just said take it for what it's worth this is what happened and you know like jason said we wouldn't know of area 51 and not even area 51 s4 just outside of that like you can't be that granular and specific unless there's something you know there's where there's smoke there's fire so it, there's nobody's that lucky to just make that kind of stuff up. He had told us about S4. And I remember calling Nellis Air Force Base. There was a captain in charge of their public information office who confirmed, yeah, there's an S4. Uh, in fact, there's more than one. I said, well, can you tell me where they are? No. Can you tell me what goes on there? No. You call Nellis today and ask them about S4. They said, there's nothing on the range maps. It doesn't exist. Well, it really was there. You know, we had satellite photos back then that showed there was a road that went from Groom Lake down to Papoose, supposedly to a spot where they had never had anything. There was nothing at whatsoever at all there. Somewhere, someone built a road down there uh, for some reason for the element 115. Uh, you know, that was a mesmerizing element to the story, you know, and he had it in a, he had a piece of it. He didn't steal it, but he had it. And it was in a sort of a, Computer looking metallic uh, disc uh, that he had at his house. And he only uh, used one time that he did an experiment that I think you guys have probably seen where it was a cloud chamber where it bent light in this fish tank. Um, and Bob had told me in the very first interview about 115, and he said, look, we're it's stable, it's heavy, but we're never going to be able to make it. You know, we have synthesized 115 now, it lasts for a few microseconds and, and then it goes away. But he said it would take so much energy to create stable 115. He doesn't think that we humans will ever be able to do it. He said that that piece had to come from somewhere where it's a natural element, like in a dual star system, something like that. So people have uh, either said, all right, yeah, he knew about 115, or they lock on to the fact that it's not as he described it. Well, 
what we've created is a version. It's an isotope. Just as there are multiple isotopes of gold, there aren't many of them that are stable. But eventually, if we had enough money and energy to put into it, we could make it. We haven't done it yet. But Bob was way ahead of the curve. Um, you know, he wasn't the first one to predict that there was going to be an element uh, like 115. But he's among the only ones to say, yeah, there's an island of stability in there. And I think he'll be proven accurate eventually. People, it's like a Rorschach test. If you want to believe Bob, you can. You can find enough to justify his story. I think I'm in that camp. I, I found enough that that is uh, hard to explain otherwise unless he knew what was really going on. And then you will have people who will never believe it. They will latch on to the few things about him, the things about him that uh, dissuade them from believing him. You know, his criminal element, that there was a, something he did. It's a very human kind of a thing. And the reason we know about it is because I reported it. I went to this, this place where this uh, this hooker had an operation in an apartment. Lazar had told me about it. I thought, oh, my God. Oh, no. This is my life is flashing before my eyes. <laughs> what have I done? So I don't believe it. What are you talking about? He says, yeah, it's it's like two blocks from where you live on the same street. I said, oh, no. This is the end. Just show me. And I went there. And uh, it was very clever in a Lazarian kind of way. There was two apartments back to back. And they had carved a hole in a closet. Here, one part was sort of like the office, the intake center, and they going through the closet. That's where the girls would work. That oh my god! Uh, I think they even offered me a freebie when I was there. That oh yeah, you think you think I should do that? Huh? <laughs> no, no. It's um, on the house. Come I on. I told Bob after I left. I said you got to shut this down. You got to shut it down now. Because there were two cops, two vice cops who knew about it at the time. And I said, you got to shut it down. I will contact the police. I'm going to let them know about this, that it's done. So he shut it down. I contacted the police. I said, you know, a couple of your cops know about it. It's done for now. The next day they raided it and, and decided that they were going to make an example of him. And in those days, there weren't a whole lot of people in Las Vegas who are prosecuted for pandering. You know, there are now, um, but there weren't then. And it was I think a lot of the people who worked with him and out, who are out there now probably saw that as an example of you don't come public with this stuff because they'll destroy your life. Um, you know, it was it was a really interesting time. It was very dicey. We were followed. You know, we were followed. Some of the guys who followed us around then told me about it after they got out, you know, after they were done with the work. There were break-ins at his house. People would come in, leave all the doors and windows open. They'd write things on his on his blackboard, they'd erase things, they'd move things around. That really happened. Did that ever happen to you, George? Like, did 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 they mess with you at all like that when you were investigating him? Yes and no. I mean, I was followed. My phones were tapped. Um, people would follow me home. They would follow me to different restaurants and bars I'd go to. Um, and I really was pretty ticked off about it in those days. You know, I, I have told this story before, but in the, in the wake of Bob Lazar, and we we're working on a second series, I had multiple people call me to offer information. There were six of them right in a row who told me that they, they told me their story, what they had seen, what they knew, and they agreed to go on camera. And one after another, they were visited by people from agencies who told them to shut the hell up or else. Uh, there was one lady, I've told this story before, she worked for our court system. Um, she had worked as a secretary to a defense contractor, sat in on meetings involving Air Force people from Nellis and contractors at Area 51, where they talked about crash retrieval material. 
she took the notes, a stenographer, and then they would take the typewriter out of uh, the, the ribbon out of the typewriter um, and would take the notes. And she was sworn to secrecy. And she told this story to a cop I knew who told me the story. I reached out to her. She agreed to do an interview on camera if I blacked out her face. And the next day she's visited by these guys who say, look, we know that you travel to L.A. to see your daughter and that she travels to see you. It's a big desert out there. It'd be terrible if something happened to either one of you. She was scared to death. She's she was she's now passed on, but she was scared to death about that. That really happened. These people were not crisis actors. They had I had reached out to them. Some reached out to me. And one right after another, somebody told them to shut up. That really happened. So somebody was watching us. They were messing with Bob. They tried to intimidate him. And uh, he went forward. I think he felt like it was the only way to save his life. So I know it is controversial and people have strong feelings both ways. Believe what you want. You know, there is stuff to support his story. There's stuff to denigrate his story. People latch on to whatever they want to believe. But I, I believe him. Doesn't mean it's literally true, but I suspect that it is. Yeah, he's a brilliant man, too. Like you mentioned several times, he'll just build you stuff. Like, if you need a scanner, he's like, dude, I'll build you one. Yeah. Like, he's just... Yeah, it was, you know, yeah. he be building rocket cars in his driveway. He had a rocket you know, car. At a time before he, he the internet, it. and there was... Yeah, he bought that you know, rocket car and then tinkered with it and made it. But he built a rocket engine for his Honda. He had a, a backpack, a rocket engine uh, for that would propel a, a scooter. Um, you know, he developed a hydrogen system. When I went to see him in New Mexico... The first time I went there, when he moved there, he had a hydrogen system that ran his car, his his Corvette. There was a 30-foot-long uh, particle accelerator in a house in the back of his home that he had used to create this hydrogen fuel. Pretty good for a non-scientist dude to do that. Yeah, right? And yeah. You, you had mentioned, like, he'll build you something. He made a flamethrower for Jeremy Corbell. This is before Elon Musk developed one. Uh, and for me, at the beginning of COVID, I was talking to him. I said, Man, we're a little worried. We didn't know about COVID, how it spread, but people were saying, you got to disinfect your packages and things, deliveries. I said, I think I might try to buy some UV scanner. He goes, no, no, don't do that. Hold on. I might have enough here in my garage to build you one. And it's so a week later, it arrives. He just, who has the stuff to build a UV yeah. uh, scanner device in your garage? Well, he did. And, and it worked, you know. I can't even find a screwdriver in my garage. It's just such a mess. <laughs> That's why they didn't ask you to re uh, reverse That's, engineer these crafts. That's the obviously only reason. I've been I've been waiting, but uh, they've never gotten in touch with me. So <laughs> that's just they don't need me. <laughs> Perfect, George. I thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, you're very generous with your time, sir, and we're very appreciative of this. And especially because this is the second year anniversary episode, that's what we're making it. Um, it it means a lot to talk to you. And like I said, we've been fans since you know the first story that I've ever seen, which was Bob Lazar came out. I've been a fan, and uh, I will continue to be so. So um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and. It, just for the viewers if for, or the listeners that have don't know where to find you yet, uh, where can we find you online? Well, I work for KLAS still off and on. I, you know, they uh, they give me a lot of flexibility. Mystery Wire has been where I've been posting my stories, mysterywire.com. And we took a little uh, a sabbatical from that, but I'm starting to put new content on there. I, I host Coast to Coast Radio and uh, Colum and I are working on a uh, follow up to Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. I hope people will check that out. Um, we, I think it needs to be a film project, documentary project uh, with Colum and, and, uh, and Jim Lekatsky. 
you know, he's only been on camera, like Dr. Lukaski, for a little brief clip. I think we're going to coax him into doing something more. And Colin Kelleher, he was going to be on this with us uh, today. He was, yeah. We have him next emergency, week. But it, when you have him on your show, then you get the real scoop because he's the guy that really knows the, this stuff much better than I do. Uh, Jason and, and uh, Louie, thanks for having me. And I hope to talk to you again.